why isn't Satan in Tartarus? I mean, isn't he the ultimate bad guy? Yeah, but again, he's the mob boss. So he gets other angels to do his dirty work. He himself does not touch it. Now, one reason I think that Satan is going to be put into the abyss for a thousand years is because in the end, when he raises up the Antichrist or the beast, he is going to offer his own seed into this being. Uh, and then this being will, of course, he's going to do all kinds of bad stuff. And so because of that, I think Satan will be put into the abyss for a thousand years. Legit scientists right now are positing that we live in a simulation. I feel like a lot of stuff is going on in the world that's brought up a lot of these conversations, even in our last couple episodes, just with UAP disclosure and, you know, the Nephilim agenda that we always come back to. The world largely rejects their message and treats them as hostile extraterrestrials who must be stopped at any cost. Happy New Year, campers, and welcome back to the first episode of Camp Herman 2024. Tori, what is up? Can you believe it's another year? I wish I had a popper here. Maybe Mike can can add that sound effect in a little. <laughs> a little party popper sound effect. Yeah. I can't yeah. believe it's 2024, actually. It's pretty weird. Over, over, under... What are the odds we make it to 2025? And by we, I mean like humanity. humanity? Yeah. Um, good question. I think 2025, we might make it there, but I think it's, I think it's, I think that's it. I don't think we're going to go past 2025. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 2025. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I work for State Farm and they give us like a free gift. And the last day we have to get the gift is like, January 5th. So I'm like on there. Okay. I need to make sure I get my free gift. I haven't even looked until today. Well, they have stuff on Amazon and wouldn't you know it, they had a 222 piece survival kit. Like that comes with the backpack with everything full, like full of like medical stuff, tools. Like I don't even know all, what all is, is in it, there. I was like, it, I can't say. Gun oh, on there. <laughs> no, what, what now? <laughs> Never mind. Does it come with like a one of these? Oh, a um, uh, a pew pew projectile. Oh, there you go, a pew pew. It does not, but I'm gonna add. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna add one to it when I uh, when I get it. But uh, no, I thought that was awesome. I was like, you know what, this really might come in handy uh, because I was talking with uh, Enoch Putris, my friend, and our one time uh, producer. And he gives us four months to like full like zombie apocalypse. That's all. Um, yeah, just four months. Uh, so we uh, we'll see about that. Well, it's honestly um, good news for my budget, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Tori, I'm excited because uh, we've got our our friend and resident scholar, uh, Doctor Douglas Hamp, joining us. Uh, for another installment of, I don't know what we're, unofficial Camp Herman book club. Um, but uh, we're going to be going through uh, his book, Corrupting the Image, um, volume one. Uh, we're going to, we're going to hit topics from chapter seven, the sons of God, according to ancient sources and chapter nine, we're skipping over chapter eight. Uh, we're going to kind of talk about it for just a few minutes um, but it, that's about the the Sethite um, view, um, and that's titled The Sons of Seth and Daughters of Cain Theory. And the reason why we're going to kind of gloss over that is because we did an entire episode on it, episode 52. Um, so when we get to that point, if you haven't listened to episode 52, go back and listen. And I will say, if you haven't, if you haven't read his book or listened to his book on Audible, uh, you don't have to do that before you listen to this episode. We're going to just be kind of drawing uh, some some of the themes from that. But certainly, if you're listening to this and you're like, this is fascinating and you want to dive in, go to Amazon, go to Audible. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Douglas Hamp, and the book is Corrupting the Image, Angels, Aliens, and the Antichrist Revealed. Without further ado, Dr. Doug, 
2024. Hey, yeah. Yeah, we'll see if we make it or not. But uh, I agree with you, Tori. It would be good for our budgets if we didn't have to <laughs> keep doing, you know, <laughs> this drudgery all the time. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I find that uh, living is quite popular and maybe we'll just we'll see if we can't keep on going there. But uh, <laughs> you never know. You never know. But uh, I'll tell you, with all the things that are happening from Israel to Iran to geez, China, Russia, Ukraine, who knows? I mean, but uh, I suspect we're going to just based on scripture, it does seem like we have a whole lot more that is going to come down the pike. So I, I don't see the end of the world just yet. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if that little minute uh, hand is getting close to midnight, you know, what are we, 1159 and a half? I don't know, something like that, but <laughs> yeah. we're getting there. So yeah. seems like it. We have to at least get through one more of um, Chris's wedding receptions. So yes, yes, so. Uh, the la our last, our final, our final wedding, which is really just going to be a big, a big party. Um, although she's still going to be in the white dress, but is uh, yeah, November coming we'll up. Try to November. hold off the zombies until yeah, then. yeah. Hopefully we can. Hopefully we can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doctor Doug. The Sons of God, according to ancient sources. When I was reading through this, I've got it on my Kindle. I don't know if it's my ADHD or if the chapter's just that good. There's some pages I quite literally highlighted <laughs> the entire page. And I'm like, well, I don't know how useful this is going to be. Um, <laughs> but it was it was fascinating. So what I would love for you to do is I kind of want to give you the floor uh, for this chapter who are the sons of God? How are they described according to the ancient sources? Yeah, well, you know, this is the the really weird thing, you know. So, yeah, I know we're skipping chapter eight, and, and that's just fine. But the the predominant theory in most churches today is that the sons of God were maybe mighty men or something, but that, that somehow fallen angels and women mated, they just think is absolutely preposterous and that we're just a bunch of, you know, retards and... and people who are, you know, quacks or something like that. But but when you go back and you actually look at the ancient resources, you discover that the unanimous position, this is by William Whiston, who was the translator of Josephus, he says the unanimous position, the constant opinion of antiquity, was that the sons of God were angels who came down and they mated with women. All right, so that is really, really huge. And, you know, the first place to start when anytime we're looking at a question that's related to the Bible is, well, starting the Bible, right? So obviously we have Genesis chapter six, right? So we've already been there. But the question is, how do we interpret Genesis chapter six? Well, I think there's no one better than to go, you know, to the Bible itself. And where we actually have a commentary on the Bible is in the New Testament. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is Peter speaking. And he says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into Tartarus, which is the uh, Greek um, place of, uh, you know, where you put, where you put the, um, the, the Titans. Okay. So that's kind of interesting and locked them up in chains in utter darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world. And if he turned to ashes, the city of Sasan, Sodom and Gomorrah, when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example of future generations of the ungodly, if you, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man in anguish, right? So, and especially those who indulge in fleshly desires. All right, so Peter is drawing on two different things here. You've got what happened back in the days of Noah, and then you also have what happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, we have maybe a little bit more detail. We know that two angels went there. They went into Sodom, and the men in Sodom wanted to sodomize uh, those two angels. That's where we get the word. And um, basically, they wanted to have homosexual relations with them. But what's interesting, it, it almost seems that somehow those men maybe had a sense that these were not just, um, you know, dudes, but these were actually somehow angelic beings. And what's interesting is that when we look at the book of Jude, which is really a parallel to what Peter is saying, uh, he says, now I desire to remind you that even though you have been fully informed of these facts once for all, uh, for Jesus having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. 
You also know that the angels who did not keep their within their proper domain, that's arcane, but abandoned their own place of Ukiterion residence, he is kept. All right. So these are some angels who did not keep their proper place, but they went outside of their domain. They did something that they were not supposed to do. Um, and so it says that um, these are locked up for the judgment of the great day. So also as Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desires in a way similar to these angels are now displayed as an example of suffering the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is telling us straight up that what happened in um, what happened in the days of Noah was similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And we're told point blank that it's angels who went and you know did some naughty things, and they were they were you know taking part in some uh, forbidden sexual unions. Uh, that that was, well, a big problem. And that really is the main um, issue when it comes to why God decided to flood the whole world, right? And and if you leave that out, you have a really weird, um, you just have a really weird narrative. Why would a God who is so loving decide to kill everybody for just not being so nice to each other? Because people have not been nice to each other for ages, right? So, so those are two huge uh, New Testament sources, obviously ancient sources, but these are New Testament, uh, and because they're New Testament, anybody who who holds to the Bible as being authoritative, as being inspired, the inspired Word of God, well, here you go. Here you have the inspired Word of God as directed by the Holy Spirit, telling us that it was angels who came down, and they did something similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, we know very clearly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah, what almost happened right over there, because we're told in Genesis chapter 18, uh, chapter 19, right? So we don't have any any uh, mystery uh, about that, right? So, you know, that's really the, I think, one of the most important places for us to start. And again, it says that, you know, these did, uh, they did something that was similar to what the angels did. So what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah was similar to what the angels did uh, back in in Noah's day, right? And I mean, I just think it's incredibly powerful. We don't have to to uh, dig too far uh, to start looking at this. Now, people could say, "Well, wait a second. I mean, that's just kind of a weird interpretation." Well, okay, if you know, maybe people want to uh, suggest that we can go and we can start looking at some other ancient sources uh, to get another sense. So here, this is a church father, Athenagoras. From 177, he's he wrote in concerning the angels and giants that it was the fallen angels who fathered the giants before the flood. He says, just as with men who have freedom of choice as both both to both virtue and vice, so it is among the angels. Some free agents you observe, such as they were created by God, continued in those things for which God had made and over which He had ordained them. But some outraged both the constitution of their nature and the government entrusted to them, namely this ruler of matter in its various forms and others of those who were placed about this first firmament. These fell into impure love of virgins and were subjected by the flesh and became negligent and wicked in the management of the things entrusted to them. All right, so, you know, this is the, the basic um, message that we have coming from the church fathers, um, Commodianus, he says something very similar when Almighty God, to beautify the nature of the world, willed that earth should be visited by angels. When they were sent down, they despised his laws. Such was the beauty of women that it turned them aside so that being contaminated, they could not return to heaven. Rebels from God, they uttered words against him. Then the highest uttered his judgment against them. And from their seed, giants are said to have been born. Right. So, I mean, here you have it again and again. And again, we have this uh, this understanding that it was fallen angels who came down and, yes, had sexual relations with the women, and that is how the giants came on the earth. Yeah, so, Dr. Doug, I can't remember if you said this in a previous episode or if this is something that Derek Gilbert had said um, in a conversation with us, but, like, using the Bible to interpret the Bible, if you go to Job 1, 
um, verse six. Now there, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also was among them. And so it just doesn't make sense at all. If, if you're taking the phrase sons of God and interpreting it as like, Oh, the sons of Seth, they were from this like righteous line of men. Like, no, that doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense at all. But these men came to present themselves before God and Satan was among them. Like it's clearly talking about angels. It's talking about the heavenly hosts, like the divine council and Satan was among them. Um, But I wanted to ask you something else that you mentioned in your book. So um, you mentioned how Satan was obviously among the the fallen angels who rebelled um but it doesn't seem i mean clearly here like he's not locked up in tartarus like they are Mm -hmm. um and so i don't know that just kind of i thought was perplexing and i think maybe for our listeners too like what do you think it is that set apart satan from these other rebel angels who are who are locked up in chains under the earth somewhere yeah so that's a that's a great question that one perplexed me too and uh, the answer, as far as I can tell, is that Satan is so clever that he gets other people to do his his dirty work. All right. So this is the mob boss that never does anything wrong, but he has everybody else doing all his dirty work for him. Right. So he's like, hey, I never said that. Right. But it's all in code. Right. And so, you know, Satan. Right. You know, who's who's responsible for the fall of Adam? Well, Adam is right. I mean, you know, Satan didn't put a gun to his head and said, eat that thing or else, right? He simply asked a question, you know, did God really say, right? And so he planted that seed in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And I think he did basically the same thing to the other angels. Now, you notice there from uh, both of those church fathers that they're suggesting that the angels came down uh, as basically good guys, and in the course of time, they became bad guys. And I think that's essentially what happened, right? That they came down, uh, they were still good, they had not fallen, they were about God's business. And then uh, over the course of time, probably Satan, who is the slanderer, and I think we've talked about this in one of our episodes, but you know, his very name in Greek, Diavolos, the devil, it literally means a slanderer. And if we look at that name in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, there he's called Rachil, and Rachil is a slanderer, right? So that is what he is. He is responsible for his great slandering, not his um, incredible amount of, uh, you know, trading. That's the, the word that is often used there. But by the abundance of his slandering, he became filled with violence and God cast him out. So, you know, obviously Satan slandered God to Adam and Eve, and I think he slandered God to the other angels. And my thinking is it probably went something like this. You know, maybe he said something like, hey, you know, um, only God is worthy of our praise. You know, only God is worth serving. Uh, the word serving there in the Hebrew, it's it means both to to work to serve uh, and, and to worship, right? So uh, it maybe there's a little bit of a play on word going on here. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, so maybe this whole idea that that a greater being should have to serve a lesser being, maybe somehow he twisted that. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating. But, you know, maybe he, he sort of planted that idea in their minds that, hey, we are so mighty and the lesser beings should serve the greater being. After all, aren't we serving God and he is the greater being? Right. And of course, let's keep in mind that, you know, they did not understand the depths to which God would go to to humble himself, to buy back, to redeem his creation. Right. Now we can look at this in, in the light of Christ. We can say, Oh my, oh my God, right? Like, wow, thank you, God, for doing that. And you know, now I know how much you love us. And now I know the the extent that you will go to to buy us back. But, you know, back then, maybe it wasn't quite so clear how deep he would go to to make things right. And so, again, this is all speculation, but it, it seems to fit in my mind just with some of the basic principles we have in Scripture, uh, just some of the, the things that were the clues that we're getting about his abundance of his slandering and these other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think when the when the fallen angels or, you know, when the good angels came down, they they came down and, and that is how they were able to materialize is that they were still good angels. When the two angels went into Sodom and Gomorrah, 
they very clearly were able to manifest as you know human like and um and based on that it, it, at least uh, it, it seems that some type of you know homosexual uh sexual activity was uh was um you know was possible right that that they could do that because they did have some kind of a of a physical form um and it, just a term i want to throw out though yeah well, well just like one term i want yeah eyeballs are the biblically accurate angel that I, that meme is floating all around you know but like that one ezekiel description i think of the watchers anyway it, i agree i think they looked like men it wasn't like you know 20 eyeballs and like six pairs of wings and whatever so yeah well not all angels are, are cherubim right so from what I can count, there seem to be about five cherubim. Uh, that seems to be the number. We've got Satan, and we got four others that are ever mentioned. So, I don't know. Maybe there's more. I don't know. But, um, but in the event, um, you know, when when the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah, they um, they were obviously good angels, and that's when the men wanted to uh, you know do sexual things with them. But when a a fallen angel um, wants to interact in this world, he's not allowed. It's not, it's not able, right? Because they have been stripped of their glory and they do not have the capacity to come into this realm. And I think that's very much on purpose. I think God did that. He put this veil between heaven and earth to protect us from them, uh, you know, and, and keep them from us, right? So that there's this, literally there's this barrier between us uh, for our safety. So, um, you know, all good things. So, we have that, and then um, you know we have these other pre-New Testament Jewish texts as well, right? So we've got the Book of Enoch, we've got the Tales of the Patriarchs, also known as the Genesis Apocryphon. We've got Philo, we have the Aramaic Targumim of the Pentateuch. We've got uh, the ancient historian Josephus and others, and they're all consistently saying that it was fallen angels who were able to produce uh, offspring. So. Again, it's not something that's crazy. It's it's the predominant. In fact, it's the the unanimous position that people were believing that this is how it was. Um, so let's take the uh, the Genesis Apocrypha. All right. So here you have this guy named Lamech, and um, he has a wife, and he's really concerned that that you know his wife is pregnant. He's concerned that the child might not be his. It might actually belong to a fallen angel or a watcher. So he says, I thought in my heart that the conception was the work of the watchers, the pregnancy of the holy ones, and that it belonged to the giants. All right, so isn't that interesting right here? So the watchers and the holy ones, right? So he's thinking, hey, here you have these angels that are supposed to be watching over us. That's obviously the word there. And, and they're holy ones, right? So they're still good guys before they become bad guys, right? And it's by going and taking a human woman and you know, going through with this, this sexual act that they become rebels in what they're doing, right? They're not supposed to do that. Um, and, and so he's, he's, he says, my heart was upset by this, right? I, Lamech, turned to my wife, Bittanosh, and said, swear to me by the most high, great Lord, I swear to you by the great holy one, she says, the king of the heavens, that this seed, pregnancy, and planting of fruit comes from you and not a stranger, watcher, or son of the heaven. I mean, you just can't get any clearer than this, that they really did believe, you know, with all their hearts, that it was completely possible for an angelic being to come and procreate with a woman. Now, again, I just want to stress that a fallen angel is not able to do that, right? A fallen angel has a body that is not, um, it's just not uh, compatible with a, a human body. In fact, what we see the fallen angels doing is they are possessing people. We would call them demons. Uh, and just so your, your listeners know, I, I believe that fallen angels and demons are exactly the same thing. Uh, I know that's the minority of opinion, uh, but I think that the, the language and all kinds of texts really do bear that out uh, incredibly well. But um, if you don't accept my, my interpretation, that's okay. So but in any event, you know, that these fallen angels, they have to then, uh, they need some kind of a body in order to, um, you know, to, to possess. And, and I think that might have been part of the, the impetus to do this is that they were basically creating biosuits. So, you know, it's my theory that the, 
these uh, babies that were born, uh, these Nephilim babies were, they did not have their own soul, but they were basically a blank slate. They were an avatar ready for possession by, you know, someone to come and, and to fill them just like the movie avatar. And um, so, so that's kind of how I see that, but yeah, there's so much, all right. Um, we know that the term watchers is used in the book of Daniel. Uh, so again, talking about these, uh, these angels, then we have the book of giants. This one is really cool. This is found at the um, Qumran cave one. It's in fragments. I, I mean, I wish it was in, I wish it was complete. That'd be just so cool. Right. But it talks about, they knew the secrets of something, something. Uh, the sin was great in the earth and they killed many. They begat giants. Right. Uh, there's another fragment, 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams, flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird, uh, miscegenation. So the miscegenation, uh, just a fancy word for, um, you know, genation, right? Or genes, right? So you're somehow, you've got some sexual breeding. And then miss, of course, means that, you know, two different kinds you're not supposed to do. God said everything was to reproduce according to its kind. So, you know, this is why uh, two different kinds should not uh, have intercourse because that's just a perversion and God is not at all uh, sad, he's not all happy with that at all. So in another fragment it says they defiled, they begot giants and monsters. They begot and behold, all the earth was corrupted with its blood by the hand of the giants, which they did not suffice for them. And they were seeking to devour many. The monsters attacked it. I mean, it's just, it's like, oh, I wish we had the, the, the intact text. That would be so much more fun. Right. But, you know, again, monsters, the earth is corrupt uh, from the angels in the end, it will perish and die. They cause great corruption of the earth. I was like, wow, there's just so much in here, right? Um, and then, of course, we come to the book of Enoch. Uh, and first, Enoch probably has the most complete detailed uh, look at what is going on there. So it says, it happened after the day, after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born to them, elegant, beautiful, when the angels, the sons of heaven, Beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. Then they swore all together, and they bound themselves by mutual execration. Their whole number was 200. They descended on Ardis, which, of course, is Mount Hermon, uh, which they say is at the top of Mount Armon or Hermon. That mountain, therefore, was called Armon because they had sworn upon it and bound themselves by mutual execrations. Uh, these are the names of their chiefs, Samyaza, who was their leader, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know that some people think that Samyaza is actually uh, Satan. I, I disagree with that. I think that Satan uh, was really playing the long game. And I think he was thinking, you know what? I'm just not going to get involved in this. I'm going to get other people to do the dirty work, right? And so the question that came up earlier, you know, why isn't Satan in Tartarus? I mean, isn't he the ultimate bad guy? Yeah, but again, he's the mob boss. So he gets other angels to do his dirty work. He himself does not touch it. Now, one reason I think that Satan is going to be put into the abyss for a thousand years is because in the end, when he, uh, when he uh, raises up the, the, um, the Antichrist or the beast, he is going to offer his own seed into this being, uh, and then this being will, you know, this, this hybrid uh, person, of course, is going to do all kinds of bad stuff. And so because of that, I think Satan will be put into the abyss for a thousand years as a result of that. So I think his day is coming, uh, but I think, you know, he's kind of been just trying to keep his resume really clean and say, well, I didn't actually technically do anything. It was the other guys that actually did all the dirty work. So that's my take on that. But, you know, it's it's kind of fun to, you know, just think about these things. But, um, you know, the women brought forth giants. Um, you know, it says that their statue was 300 cubits. Um, man, that's that's seriously tall, right? A cubit, um, probably we're looking at about 20.63 inches uh, based on the Egyptian royal cubit. So, uh, you know, so they're what, probably 450 feet tall. That's crazy tall. Um, you know, were they really that tall? I don't know. I, you know, it's hard for me to say. But again, it's just the the overwhelming amount of evidence that shows us that everybody believed this. And, um, 
you know, so we've got Philo. He's from Philo from Alexandria. He was a contemporary of Christ and uh, just a brilliant, uh, brilliant scholar. He says, when the angels of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, they took unto themselves wives of all whom they chose, those beings other whom other philosophers call demons, Moses usually calls angels. Uh, they are souls hovering in the air. So again, that's one of the reasons that I think that demons and angels are exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, Philo thought so, and I think he was a true scholar. And so, you know, it, it's just it's just a different language, right? Demons just means mighty ones. Angels means messengers. But we're talking about one and the same uh, kind of uh, of being. So, you know, we've got we've got him. We have um, the Targum of Jonathan. Some some uh, Chazai and Uziel who fell from heaven were on the earth in those days, uh, you know they uh, and the sons of the great had gone into the daughters of men. Uh, Josephus, you know, he says something very similar that um, that we have seen thus far. I mean, so again, to to say something other, to say that it wasn't angels who came down on planet Earth and impregnated women to create this race of giants is to completely ignore all of the ancient evidence. And I think the ancient evidence is very powerful. It's unanimous in its uh, position. Uh, you know, and it's really not until we get to Julius Africanus and then, you know, Julius Africanus sort of floats the idea, well, maybe it wasn't, you know, the, the it, wasn't, it wasn't fallen angels, but maybe it was just, uh, you know, bad people or something like that. And then, you know, Augustine, he he really runs with that idea. And then, of course, by the time we get to Kelvin, you know, he's just, it's a, it's a, a no-brainer for him. Well, obviously, you know, Kelvin, Kelvin's thinking there's absolutely no way. And so then this whole Sons of Seth uh, theory, you know, begins developing with Julius Africanus and Augustine and then, of course, Kelvin. Um, so that's, you know, the evidence is what it is. And, and, and as far as I'm concerned, I just want to know the truth. You know, if, if the Sons of Seth was the truth, okay, fine. Right. But that means I have to ignore all this other evidence and I just can't do that. And it doesn't make any sense. Now you have a Bible that's just like, God's like, look, I don't want the, the sons of, of Cain and the, and the, or the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. I don't want them marrying. I mean, what is God racist? I mean, is he against different ethnicities uh, marrying each other? Is that somehow bad? I mean, that's kind of where this leads. If you really start following it to its logical conclusion and saying that, you know, different ethnicities should not marry one another. And of course, he never says that, right? So that's just something that man has invented. So yeah, that's uh, a lot of fun there in that chapter. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. I have multiple fully highlighted pages to <laughs> prove that. <laughs> okay, so if we're saying that the sons of God are not just merely men and that they mated with women and their offspring were the Nephilim, so who are these Nephilim? What are they? Yeah, well, the word nephilim it, it comes. It's a Hebrew word. It probably is a causative. Uh, so we could actually call them uh, fellers. Okay, like hey, young feller. But no, this is like what you do to a tree. You fell a tree. Okay, so that's probably the idea. These would be the ones who are causing something to fall. That would be my guess. All right. Um, you know, there's been lots of debate about what this word actually means, but I think the word nafal which is just so clearly in this word is right there. And I think if we see it as a, as a hefil, which is a causative, then I think it takes care of all that. And it would be someone who causes something to fall, okay, or a, a feller, right? F-E-L-L-E-R, which is probably not, you know, your standard English word right there. But uh, I think that would be the basic idea um, you know, there are others, uh, Gesenius, uh, in his Hebrew lexicon, he suggests that, um, that, uh, these Nephilim is, uh, fallers or, you know, fellers, re rebels, apostates. Um, the, what the, the Septuagint does with this is really interesting. They say, Ugigantes, right? And this word, Ugigantes, is one who is, these are definitely the giants in Greek mythology, but what is a Gigantes? Uh, well, you know, geek is related to the word gay, which is uh, the word for earth. Okay, so these would be the earth-born ones. 
as opposed to the heavenly born ones. But not just your average humans. That, that's not what it's saying. It's that these are gods, but who were born on earth versus gods who were born in the heavenlies, okay, in, in the Greek mythology, right? So, um, you know, again, the god, the children of Uranos uh, are the, the gods, right? And then, of course, the children of earth would be humans. But if you have children who are from both heaven and earth, then those are your gigantes or gegenes, a different word for that. Um, so that's where we we get this whole idea. And, and another word, they're demigods, they're they're hybrids. Uh, this would be like maybe Achilles uh, in in Greek mythology, Hercules, right? So Zeus is their dad, and who knows who their mother is, right? But but that's the basic idea. Um, and you know maybe there's a lot of big some pretty big kernels of truth in that. Um, before the fall is that you had if you know Zeus represents you know any one of the various um, fallen angels, then you know sure um, you know there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on uh, back then. But um, you know so yeah these these Nephilim were the giants of old, right? This is where we get in uh, Genesis chapter six when the the uh, when the the sons of God or when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, they took any of that they chose. Right? These were they created the procreated the Nephilim. That's what it is: is that you have giants, you have hybrids that are being born to them. Now, what's really interesting is that it we only have the word Nephilim in two different places in Scripture. It's in Genesis six four and it's in Numbers thirteen thirty three. It says the descendants of Anak came from the giants or from the Nephilim. But we, I, I created some tables in the book and I show that Anakim, so Nephilim and Anakim are exactly the same thing, right? So the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim, right? So that we just put a little equal sign between theirs and then you can see, oh, okay. And then you just have to trace it. And then we see that Anakim also equal Rephaim and Emim. Rephaim can also equal Zamzumim and Anakim. And we know that King Og of Bashan was one of the Rephaim. And then we have Bashan also of the Rephaim. Now, I, I, I explore that idea a little bit deeper in Corrupting the Image Volume 2, where the word Rapha means to heal. Uh, and so these are probably healers. Uh, that would be the basic idea. Um, so, you know, one, you know, one caveat would be that before the flood, it was fallen angels, well, good angels who then became fallen through what they did. They were coming and mating directly with women to create the Nephilim. And then after the flood, uh, again, I detail this much more in volume two, is that they, uh, these other beings were probably related to Nimrod. And I go through all the evidence to suggest that. The word Rafa meaning to heal. And so maybe somehow... These were ones that were trying to be uh, either healed or they were trying to be healers themselves, right? So again, there's some debate on that, but um, you know, all kinds of interesting things uh, when we start digging into that stuff. But again, you know, we see that these are all of the same general category. So uh, whether it's you know the Amorim, right? So Sihon of the Amorites, he was one of the Rephaim, uh, who was also an Amorite, uh, King Og of Bashan. We're told that King Og is also an Amorite. So Amorite becomes a general term as well. Now, this is really interesting because in Genesis chapter 15, where God is making this unilateral promise to Abraham, he says, you know, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? And again, I go into a lot of detail in volume two, where I show that the god of the Amorites is actually Martu, and Martu, it's Mem, Resh, Dalit, same root letters as Nimrod, okay? Same exact root letters. And, um, you know, it's the same guy, right? That, you know, just put it simply, it's the same guy, also known as Ninurta uh, and, and a number of other names. Marduk, right? Uh, Martes, right? So Mars, uh, Mars comes from Marduk, which comes from Martu. It's all the same guy, probably relating back to uh, to Nimrod. But but the point here is that you have the uh, this miscegenation. You have the the generation between two different, uh, utterly distinct species that should not happen. 
the angelic kind and the human kind, right? So that is something that should not be happening. And, you know, it's just amazing when you start looking at all of the different passages, and there's a lot, right? In the book of Deuteronomy, the first three chapters are just talking about the, the you know, the giants all over the place. And the, the word there for giant in Deut Deuteronomy is the word Rephaim. Uh, but they also talk about the Emim, the Zuzim, uh, right? So these are just various other names. They're synonymous with, with the term Rephaim, which are roughly roughly equal to the, to the Nephilim. Right. So, you know, again, we just see how much was going on there. Now, it says that when the the 12 spies came back, it says all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now, this is where, you know, your skeptics says, yeah, well, you know, those those Israelites, they're all really short. You know, they were like five, seven, five, eight. So anybody over that would be really tall to them. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it. Again, even if they were relatively short, um, you know, if you have somebody that's, you know, six inches taller, are you going to say that he's a giant? I don't know. I mean, he's tall for sure, but that doesn't necessarily make him a giant. And and again, were they just exaggerating? And that's, and that's why they didn't get to go into the promised land? Or were they actually telling the truth, uh, but they simply just didn't believe in God, right? So it says... Um, you know, these people were enormous. They were, they likened themselves to grasshoppers compared to the Nephilim, right? And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So again, are they just like being preposterous in this whole thing? Or did they really find these beings that were so huge? They're like, man, I feel like a grasshopper and I look like a grasshopper compared to these guys, you know? So look, I mean, we've all met people that are taller than us. Does that mean you feel like a grasshopper next to them? I don't think so. I mean, it seems kind of kind of silly. But what's interesting, again, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. So in Amos 2.9, God says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. So is God exaggerating? You know, sometimes we might tell a big fish story. You know, I caught a fish that was, you know, this big, right? It's only four inches, but I'm going to kind of make it look like it was like a foot. But is God want to exaggerate? I don't know. I mean, I get the sense that God is pretty confident in himself. He's, he's you know, well-established. He doesn't need to brag about stuff. He's just like, hey, I'm God. You know, I just tell you the way it is. So God is telling us that the Amorites, their height was like the cedars. So if we go and we take a look at a cedar tree, they're somewhere between 40 to 80 feet tall on average. So let's take the short one. Let's, let's be really conservative. So let's say that it's about 40 feet tall. Well, we see this idea of a cedar tree in the book of Job. And uh, this is where um, God is boasting about the behemoth. Again, God here is the one talking. And he says that this behemoth, right? He says, uh, you know, he says, look at behemoth, right? which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. All right, so that gives us uh, something really to think about. And it certainly means that his tail is stiff. Uh, if we compare this to a, a, a dinosaur, uh, this would be the sauropod class of dinosaur, probably Diplodocus. Uh, their tail was up to 46 feet long. So that's a pretty good description of a, a tail like a cedar, right? A tail like a cedar, there you go. You got one tail that's, you know, 46 feet long. That sure sounds like a cedar tree to me. So we can use that now as a reference to say, okay, these, these Amorites, these giants were really, really tall. Were they all 46 feet tall? I don't know. But even if they were 20 feet tall, that would be crazy tall, right? If they were 18 feet tall, that would still be crazy tall or, you know, 15 feet tall. I mean, look, I'm 6'2". I'm, I'm taller than most people, okay? Obviously, not everybody. And sometimes when I meet a tall person, I'm like, oh, this is what it looks like to look up to somebody, right? That's how it feels. Um, but, you know, a couple inches above me, all right, that's one thing. But two and a half, three times my height? Now, that would be crazy, right? And that's when I go running for the hills because uh, that is just the, the proportions are so much different. Now, Scripture actually tells us how big King Og was, right? So this is really cool. It tells us 
that um, it says, uh, let's see here. Let me just get that reference there. So it says, for only King Og of Bashan remained of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not a Rabbah the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. Well, okay, so how big was a cubit, right? Uh, a cubit, it, it varied in length over the years. It was anywhere from 18 inches to up to about 25 inches. But when Moses is writing this, what cubit do we presume that he probably would have used? Well, Moses was raised where? In Egypt. What did he learn? All the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he probably used an Egyptian royal cubit. So I had the opportunity to go to the British Museum back in 2014, which was really exciting. And I asked if I could actually go and look at the real Egyptian royal cubit. And it was really exciting. I had to put on gloves and they're like, well, you can't take any pictures, but... Uh, you could measure it. So I did. And I got to measure this thing with my own hands. It was 20.63 inches. That's exactly how long it was. 20.63 inches is the Egyptian royal cubit. So I maintain that Moses was using the Egyptian royal cubit. So, you know, you just got to plug in the math there, right? So um, if, if, you know, if that's how long it was, then we have uh, a pretty good sense that uh, King Og was probably about 15 feet tall. I mean, that is huge. All right. And it's and, not and, just, it's not just the height. Right. It's the mass. I mean, right. because you see some, some tall people and like, I'm thinking of like different NBA players and even some videos I've seen of like the world's tallest man, super yeah. lanky, yep. kind of walk a little bit awkward. I mean, NBA players are, are pretty athletic. Yeah. But 15 feet tall, but the mass that you talk about here is what would be the height plus the math equals terrifying. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. And exactly. the fact that his bed was made of iron, um, as you say in the book, you know, because it's like, yeah, you, you know, you could just argue maybe he was a tall guy and he wanted to have a huge bed to show off or whatever, but like to have to use iron to support his body, you know, not just like a giant wooden bed. Yeah, yeah, because he was heavy, right? So it was actually Galileo that uh, considered the issue in relation to animals uh, of trying to figure out, you know, how, if if, so, if someone is heavier, how much, what's that going to do um, as far as their mass, right? So there's, there's like a formula. Um, you see the cube of, um, so, you know, so King Og is, is about two and a half times taller than the average man. So you just take the cube of that, which is 15.625. Um, so he weighed 15.625 times more than an average six foot man today. So let's just say six foot man is, let's say 200 pounds just for simplicity, right? So this means that, he, you know, he's going to weigh uh, about 3,125 pounds, right? Uh, that's a big dude, right? 3,125. And 25 pounds, right? And he was a warrior, right? So he's not just some fatso, right? This guy is probably muscle-bound. He probably can, um, you know, maybe lift a, a horse or two, you know. Uh, you know, he, he probably, maybe he could pick up two horses at the same time. Now, what's interesting is uh, if, indeed, King Og, um, we don't know this exactly, but, but there's thinking that maybe Nimrod, so not King Og, but, but Nimrod may have been Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh was reported to be 18 feet tall. And in a, a huge 18-foot-tall statue of Gilgamesh in the Louvre in France, uh, he's holding a lion like you might hold a chihuahua. You know, I mean, you're like, oh, that's kind of big, you know, because lions are pretty big. I mean, they can get up to 500 pounds, and this dude is just holding it no problem right so if king ogus you know 3125 pounds i mean i didn't do the math for uh for for gilgamesh but you know he's probably close to 4000 pounds right so again it's just a big big dude so yeah okay if you're 4000 pounds you can you can hold a a little lion that's no big deal um but you know so they say they say it's a land that devours its inhabitants so so i did this this math it was kind of fun like i was trying to figure out okay what are, what's the basic amount of calories 
that you need to stay alive. Let's say you're on your deathbed, you know, you're, you're in the hospital and you're maybe unconscious. What, what are the basic amount of calories that you need to have so you don't starve to death? That's called the basal metabolic rate. So I, I did just to stay alive, King Og would have needed 22,657 calories. I mean, that's a lot, you know? So then I was like, okay, well, what does that actually mean in food? So that's like 12, 12 inch pizzas. That's like 63 cheeseburgers. I mean, this guy was, he's eating a lot of food. Uh, you know, that's you know, like a lamb every two or three days, right? So yeah, this is a land that's devouring its inhabitants. And, you know, I, I kind of think that Satan kind of wanted to leave a little a little uh, housewarming gift when the children of Israel came into Canaan, said, you know, hey, welcome. Here you go. We got a bunch of giants taking over the land. You know, Satan can actually listen in on some of God's conversations, right? So when God is having a conversation with Abraham or somebody, you know, maybe he's listening in. He's like, oh, okay. So they're going to be coming here pretty soon. We'll see what happens. They're not going to do anything because, you know, what? What are these little men going to do compared to my giants? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's he's thinking something like that. But probably from Satan's perspective, he thought, oh, I got this. This one's in the bag, right? Nothing's going to happen here. Um, but, you know, God has his ways. And that's the great thing about walking with the Lord is that he can take down any giant. It doesn't matter how big the giant is. And we see from Numbers 13 that the 12 spies that came back, they weren't just being a bunch of wimpy men, right? These were the best of the best from all the different tribes. They went in and they're like, the land is amazing, guys. You're going to love it. But there's this problem. There's these really, really big people there. In fact, they were so big, we felt like grasshoppers and they kind of thought so too. So, you know, I mean, what do you do with that? Um, I don't. I don't think their sin was exaggeration. I think their sin was just not trusting in the Lord, even though they had seen all that he did in Egypt, but they just, they couldn't translate that into what God could do against these, these mighty men. So pretty yeah. fun stuff. Wow. So yeah, absolutely. The topic of the giants is just fascinating. What I'd like to do with the last uh, 10, 15 minutes um, is just kind of ask you some general questions that we, Tori and I might have about the giants. And if we could just kind of short, short answer, um, well, as short as, as short as you can be, um, I want to go back, um, and you can be, you can be brief with this. What was the purpose before I get into the giants questions? What was the purpose of, um, those 200 angels that descended on uh, Mount Hermon, if they were good at that time, what was their purpose for, for being here? Well, you know, the whole purpose of an angel is to be an intermediary, a messenger uh, from, from God to humanity. So, you know, this is why it's so important that we spend quality time in uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because that gives us so many clues as to why God did various things. What was God doing with Adam before the fall? They were walking in the garden together, right? That tells you that God and Adam were compatible with one another. So after the fall, God put this veil, this force field between himself and us. Why? Because God's fire and we're not. And so, you know, God wants to be with us, but you know, he can't really, uh, can't really hang out with us uh, on a daily basis because he'd fry us. So you have these, these angels that he also created, and they were there to be these ministering spirits that go back and forth between the Lord, and they do his bidding. Um, you know, and sometimes God himself would show up in, in a, uh, a, a um, you know, a less glorious form, shall we say, uh, uh, here on planet Earth. But, you know, God is a God of order. He likes to use others as intermediaries to do things because that's how God operates. So... Why would they come down? Well, we're told that they were enamored of the uh, of of the women. Now, you know it, what's what's tricky though is that it says in Hebrew that they saw that the women were tovot, which means that they were good. Does it mean that they were pretty? Maybe. You know, did they really think, hey, we just want to have a nice little happy home with these women, and you know, have you know, go play softball and all this stuff? And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a little harder to to swallow. I, I get the impression that they thought, hey, you know what? We could actually make this world 
our home. We could be the gods of this world. Instead of being the servants to the humans, we can be the kings and we can take the place of God. And when I say that they were good, I put that in quotes when they came down. Yeah, they were good. Like, you know, you're good before you murder somebody. Okay. Right. Like, you know, you haven't done it yet. So you're still technically not a murderer, but you mean to, and you know, get when you get close enough, you're going to use that gun or the knife to do the dirty deed, right? And, and so there's murder in their hearts, so to speak. There is a devilish work in their hearts, but they have to perform the deed before they actually get busted for gotcha. doing the deed, right? It, it's it's not the uh, minority report where you can get in trouble for a future crime, right? You right. Know, you got to do the crime first, right? Okay. All right. So fascinating giants all right are are we saying are you saying or mm, chris edit this out to make me sound smarter so the giants they get the nephilim get they get smaller and smaller it, it seems like as time goes on is that because of interbreeding with humans that's one one that i've heard and if that if that is the case if they were so big, how were they able to interbreed with humans if they were like just that big? I mean, even even the ones that you're talking about that are like just 30, 40 feet, even 18 feet tall, which, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, well, you, you get where I'm going yeah. with this. I mean, it's just basic kind of physiology, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, were the women just as equally big? I, I get the impression that... um and again, I can't prove this entirely, but I, I get the impression that each uh, pregnancy had to be done by an angel and so that the offspring would be uh, basically um, uh, sterile, okay? Kind of like when you have a horse and a mule, a donkey, you get a mule, right? And uh, the mule cannot reproduce. So... You know, if that's the case, and I don't know that I can prove that, but that that seems to be the case. So, you know, angels can take any form that they need to, right? And they can obviously, because uh, they're shapeshifters, they can change their size. They're not limited to whatever their their glorious angelic size is, which I don't know. Um, but you know, when they come to this earth and they can take on that human form, they can probably be commensurate with what you know humans actually were. So if, if that's the case, then it wouldn't be a problem. You could have a man who is of relative size to a woman. Uh, but, but then the offspring that would come from them, uh, you know, it could be that that would have, uh, you know, torn the women apart. I don't know. Uh, it could also be that, um, you know, that uh, um, they were just, anyway, I, I, th I think probably the, the women, probably the, the offspring were, were, were sterile in my opinion. Okay. Well, so if God's saying, go in, destroy all the men, women, and children, mm -hmm. um, is it women that had sex with the angels? Because it, what it sounds like is that there's these communities mm -hmm. of, um, of Nephilim and whoops. Can you hear me? Sorry. I yes. went out for a second. What it sounds like is that there's communities of Nephilim and that they were able to interbreed. And then so you've got kind of this, I don't want to call it mixed race, but, you know, non-human folks because they've been yeah. kind of uh, corrupted. Um, yeah. But well, well, we if certainly they were sterile, from... then that wouldn't be the case. Yeah. And if they were sterile, it seems like um, angels would constantly be having to um uh to create a nephilim and you stated earlier that once they're fallen that that they don't have that they don't have that ability so does that mean there's just a, angels continually kind of well falling? according to according to edict it was 200 and you know it might have been that they could have done that many times before they actually got busted for it that would be my thinking okay so you know again we don't have all the facts so i can I'm trying to fill in some of the details, but I'm probably going to get in trouble because 
I can't prove everything that I say. And that always makes me a little bit uneasy because mm. I like to prove things from ancient sources. So there's some things right. like, yes, we know that that angels and women did some hanky-panky before the flood and, and these Nephilim came out. Uh, you know, how that continued to go is really hard to say after that. Uh, you know, and then we're talking after the flood. That seems to be a whole different ball of wax, really. We know that that Rephaim and Nephilim are related in kind, but maybe not entirely, you know, maybe it wasn't just, a, you know, a bunch of fallen angels doing their thing again. Uh, maybe somehow God put the kibosh on that. He, he, he put some type of limitation on that so that could not happen again. And then through Nimrod, a lot of this stuff happened. Now, exactly how he did that, we're not told, right? So we can, we can follow some of the linguistic clues, but uh, you know, not everything is, is made known to us. Um, now, as far as the women, um, we, we never hear of any uh, Nephilim women, okay, um, which makes you think of the Lord of the Rings and, you know, whether uh, dwarves, are there even dwarf women? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, you never see any, right? Well, you know, it's funny. You never see any women folk, right? But but apparently they exist. Um, so, you know, we again, we don't know. But what we do know is that when the, Mo the Moabite women came, um, you know, God told them, God told the Israelites to kill them because like you let these women live and they did all these, these terrible things. So probably, you know, any woman that allowed herself to be, um, to have relations with a, uh, with a fallen angel was probably, you know, in that naughty camp and, and they got in trouble. So again, don't have all the, all the facts here, just trying to piece together what we have and kind of see if we can make it make sense. So. Right. See, I love, to speculate wildly. So I'm just trying to draw you <laughs> yeah, into I know <laughs> into your speculation. <laughs> into my and speculation. I don't like to go there because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know the actual facts on that one. But yeah. it is fun to speculate. But I you know, I always want to caution people like, you know, we just don't know. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's fun to speculate, but let's not make that, you know, some doctrine because we don't know. Yeah. Tori, do you got any questions? Well, I was just gonna giant questions. Some giant questions. Maybe give a little teaser for our next book club because oh. I really liked chapters nine and ten. And a couple of things that stuck out to me were one, um, Doug, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think you said it was Tertullian was talking about how there were still giant bones around and how he believed and the word he used was germs, but he was talking about their DNA, basically mm. that, that we'd be able to reanimate them. And I just recently watched Jurassic Park and I was like, ooh, <laughs> a Jurassic Park of giants. Yeah. So there was that, I believe, in chapter nine. And then I, I had just started chapter 10, and you were talking about how some miners in Ohio, um, 90 feet down in a mine shaft, found a two foot long, 30 pound foot, like a human foot that was 30 pounds and two feet long, stuck in a mine shaft. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely evidence. And uh, yeah, in chapter 10, I, I wanted to stay away from any of the. Um, sensational pictures that we sometimes find online and just go with actual eyewitness accounts. So I'm looking forward to getting into that chapter. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm excited too. Yeah. So next time, uh, which will be end of January, beginning of February, um, we're going to get into uh, the modern discovery of giants. And then we're going to talk about, um, mingling with the seed of men the demonic deception this book just gets more intense crazier and crazier i'm probably going to highlight the entire chapter um uh, eventually we'll get to a chapter where i just highlight the whole thing um well guys and gals uh campers we appreciate you joining us for another installment of the camper mom book club and Again, if you haven't gotten Dr. Douglas Hamp's book, Corrupting the Image, Angels, Aliens, and the Antichrist Revealed, uh, you can go to Amazon, do a search, and get it on Kindle, paperback, um, Audible. It's pretty much everywhere. Um, I'll put in, uh, put in the Amazon link in the show notes. All right, Dr. Doug, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It was great. Yeah, thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, fascinating. As always, it's camp a... on, Tori. Camp on, Chris. Until next time. Peace.
Shalom. Hey, they came down to top vanity, brought the proliferation of humanity. Hey, fallen sons in the most high God took advantage of the planet he made, forming a holy alliance of evil and look at the daughters of Adam in vain. Then the flood rain came to restore his creational order to how he arranged. Put the disembodied spirits of the giants still want a war, still want to kill in the court. To see the blood of the innocent spill on the floor. That's the demoniac and the kind of issue with combined. The healer restores image bearers in his second chance when he coming back because he's bringing a sword. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah, welcome to Camp Herman. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah, welcome to Camp Herman.